Hey everyone, on this episode of Noon, I'm delighted to introduce you to Austin, an incredible individual who's left a significant mark in the world of emergency medical services. His journey is one of dedication and passion to the teaching of other professionals. Austin's career began as a math teacher, where he quickly figured out that that was not the audience he wanted to teach. So he went back to school to become an EMT, where he progressed to become a highly skilled flight paramedic. While he is proud to say that he's currently retired from the field, his influence continues to shine through his work as a clinical educator for EMS professionals. Austin is also the host of the Coffee Break Hems podcast, where he shares his wealth of knowledge and experience with a wide audience. His podcast serves as a testament to his commitment to education and the EMS community. Join us for this engaging conversation as Austin discusses what has shaped him into the remarkable individual he is today. This episode promises to provide a unique perspective on EMS, the power of education, and the impact one can make on a field even after retirement. Let's get started. Welcome, Austin, to the Noon Podcast. I appreciate you coming out so much. Thank you for coming on such short notice to it. <laughs> I, uh, I'm a fan of yours. I listen to your podcast, and we'll we'll introduce it a little bit later. But how are you doing today? Yeah, super good. Yeah, just uh, enjoying a kind of a relaxing afternoon. Had some nice lunch and a beer with my wife today, which doesn't happen very often. That's awesome. And I really love, I know people can't see it, but I love the view. I'm watching the squirrels run up and down the trees <laughs> behind <laughs> you, which is super cool. Where are you located at? I'm in uh, like far Northern California, kind of in a valley, but we're uh, a valley surrounded by lakes. So it's, uh, yeah, I mean, it's Ooh. beautiful in this area. I don't want to say the name because I don't no. want people to start moving here. <laughs> and I mean, looking through the window, it looks beautiful. And the, you know, the farthest North that I've traveled was Chico, California. And I absolutely loved Chico, California. It was beautiful yeah. up there. No, Chico's beautiful. I actually that one of my uh, one of my training centers is in Chico. I I love teaching over there because yeah, it's it's super nice and go take some lunch at at uh, Bidwell Park. It's yeah, it's a beautiful area for sure. That's awesome. So can I go ahead and get an introduction of yourself? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so my name is Austin. Uh, I've been a paramedic um, since 2010. I worked in, I started working in EMS in 2008 as an EMR, um, kind of accidentally anyway. I uh, first went to college to be a math teacher. And so started working in the math lab at the college and very quickly realized that I hate teaching people that weren't already good at math, which probably was not going to make me a very effective math teacher. So I, my <laughs> first semester of college, I actually had 11 units and I needed 12 in order to be full time. And I found this first responder class and was like, oh, that's cute. And it's like a first aid class. That's one unit. I'll take that. And then I became uh, a paramedic like three years later. Oh, <laughs> and that just happens that way, that, you know? That's, that's how I accidented into EMS, yeah. But, you know, worked the ground for, you know, seven or eight years like most people do and then moved into flight. Uh, started flying back in uh, late 14, early 15. So did it for, you know, almost 10 years. But I'm happy to say I'm essentially retired from EMS nowadays, just a uh, entrepreneur and a teacher um, growing a very fortunately successful business that started my living room about 12 years ago. That is 
so awesome. And I think that's kind of the dream for most EMS people, right? You either go yeah. into go into teaching or you stay in the field until you literally can't stay in the field anymore. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, it, you know, I think most of us paramedics, we do have some sort of side hustle at some point. Yes. Um, and, you know, I... I think a very common thread with paramedics is we certainly don't like sitting still and uh, or being alone for that matter. <laughs> so <laughs> between you know between my American Heart Association little side hustle and writing books and doing podcasts, it uh, has kept me busy, and I've been very fortunate that most of my little projects turned out to be pretty successful. So it sounds like it, and I did happen to visit your website, which looks very professional. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, I made it uh, made it on Wix in 2015, and I have I, without any hyperbole, I think that I've probably spent 10,000 hours on that stupid website, failing at it and failing at it until I finally figured out how to do it all. <laughs> it's not easy, right? And we were just talking about how much we have to YouTube things to to yeah. learn how to use them or figure them out these days. Yep, you can build a website and build a house by watching YouTube videos, that's for sure. Yes, there are a lot. You can do any medical thing watching YouTube these days. I know. People actually ask me all the time just for my web, you know, or my uh, <clears throat> podcast, they'll reach out and and ask me like how I learn all of this information. And and granted, I do read a ton of journals and look at a lot of studies and read the literature and stuff like that, but uh, I very unabashedly tell people that a lot of what I've learned in medicine, I learned on YouTube. <laughs> <laughs> I don't see anything wrong with that. So speaking yeah. of your podcast, what's, what's the title of your podcast? Uh, it's the uh, coffee break hems podcast hems like helicopter EMS. Um, started it what about three or four years ago now right at the beginning of covid um, when i was serving as an educator for my flight program i couldn't travel anymore because of the uh, uh because of all the travel restrictions so i needed to find some way to be able to teach my local branches and uh, so started the podcast and was very very surprised that at the end of season one we were you know we had listeners in all 50 states and about 38 countries and getting thousands and thousands of downloads every episode and so it kind of turned into a a thing that I decided to do, but I've been working on my second book actually that's almost done. And so I've taken a little hiatus from my podcast. I haven't released an episode in like six months or something. Like oh, that. shame on you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's hard to work for free. But I agree. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Podcasting is all good, all fun and games, but uh, it takes a lot of work on the back end to release these episodes, you know, as I'm sure you are very well aware. And yes. uh, so, you know, I do have a, a passion for it for sure. And I love education and I love releasing the podcast. You know, I get a lot of satisfaction from it uh, or personal fulfillment from it, but at the end of the day, I do have to feed my family, and uh, my wife and I have six children, and so it's oh. uh, <laughs> in Northern California, so it's expensive. You're, you're building that football team, huh? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> six, six and done, as I always say. Oh, okay, uh, six and done. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we finally, finally figured out what kept causing it. <laughs> <laughs> that is great dude that's great uh so one of my buddies had actually suggested that i listen to he just started rotor um within the last year and he was like you've got to listen to this episode 
And he said, and then you have to interview him because he sounds fantastic. <laughs> and I was like, cool. You know what? I'll listen to the episode. And the episode was called, I believe it was called My First Clean Kill. Oh, yes. Yeah. We probably we probably had about 100,000 people listen to that episode. It's what a powerful episode, man. What a powerful episode. So what prompted you to, to even record that? Uh you know, I think that uh, I, over the years, um, you know, you see so many providers that have this like profound level of hubris um, and, you know, they, they're very quick to judge and they're very quick to hate on people when they see them doing something that they don't understand. And one, one example is, uh, this was a few years ago. Um, one of our crews had showed up to a scene of this nasty, gnarly trauma and our crews carry blood on every flight. So they're transfusing the patient, but they needed to take this guy's airway. And so they're doing it properly. In my mind, I'm very passionate about airway management that's actually what my second book is about and uh the ground crews started to kind of flip out and we're like you know we could have been in the hospital by now and yada 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 and because they had just gotten to the point in their careers where they just didn't understand that there were things that they didn't know and that's such a dangerous place to be that you can get into this place of like complacency and to being so sure that you're right about everything um, that you can like kill people. And so I was thinking about a way to talk about complacency and to talk about how uh, to motivate people to learn and to continue to get better in their field. And I was like, well, you know, I can't sit here from a place of judgment. I think the best way to do it is to tell people that I've murked people at the same time. And, uh, you know, and a lot of people think that I'm a quote unquote expert in a few fields uh, or a few little micro pieces of medicine. And uh, you'll find largely universally that when you talk to anybody who's kind of an expert in the field is because we accidentally murdered somebody while trying that intervention and it created a drive that uh, that fueled that fire to be able to become an expert in that thing so that's that was my motivation behind that episode for sure yeah that was definitely a, a really powerful episode it makes you kind of could like think back on if you've been in the field for a long time kind of make makes you think back on your career yeah. and wonder you know how many of those were something that you could have prevented i mean and and i know you said you've been in ems for a long time i've been in ems for a long time there's a lot that i probably don't remember you know yep yeah no 100 percent. I, <laughs> I feel that more and more every single day <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that so what got you started on the podcast in the first place uh, it was really just that. It was when COVID started. Um, I didn't have I didn't have the ability to to travel around anymore. So I just needed a mechanism to be able to teach the classes that I felt that were important. So you know, you'll really see if you if you look back to the very early episodes of my podcast, they are very largely geared toward helicopter or flight EMS. Uh, they are not basic topics, um, and 
it's really because I was responsible at that time for doing CQI for 100% of the flights that came through our entire California program. So I read a lot of charts and I would see these, these charts where I was like, man, they, they just fumbled through that one. They didn't really know which direction to go, um, you know, with this specific piece of equipment, be it BiPAP or whatever it was. And uh, so those early episodes were all targeted toward them. But when I started to see that I was not getting 30 listens an episode, but was getting, you know, three or 4,000 an episode, I was like, well, clearly this is not just air medical people that are listening anymore because there's only like 10,000 of us in the entire country. And uh, so I just started to reach out on social media and I was like, who's listening to this podcast? And it was a ton of uh, paramedic students, um, which is amazing. I mean, uh, and and firefighters and and a bunch of other types of people. But I I used to tell all those uh, paramedic students that would reach out to me and they're like, how do I get to the place where you are? And I'm like, dude, the fact that you are listening to a medical podcast while in paramedic school and you have a firm grasp understanding that the stuff you're learning in your class right now is just the beginning of what you need to know to be effective tells me that you're going to be a much better paramedic than I ever was because you do not have the same cockiness that I definitely had when I was 20 years old going through a medic program. That's fantastic advice. Um, and so true, right? I, <laughs> I, <laughs> I was pretty similar in that, you know, I paramedic was kind of always easy. Taking the yeah. tests was easy. And I don't mean it in a bad way. I just mean like it was very natural for me. So I didn't feel like in paramedic school, I had to really go much further than I did until I got out of paramedic school. And now, um, as a flight paramedic, I'm like, oh, there's still days, you know, that I'm like, I don't know what I'm doing. Yeah. <laughs> what, what do I need to do to fix this? Right. So it's just a constant. And I try and teach that myself. Like, don't become complacent. You need to be learning something every day. If not something you need to be, you know, specializing in one thing every day because it can get so scary sometimes. Yeah. Yeah, no, I definitely, uh, I I live in medicine by a mantra, but I'll save it for the end. But yeah, I mean, it's it's definitely, this little sentence is definitely something that I've told myself many, many, many times, but I'll, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll leave us with that at the very we'll end. We'll save it, okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so out of all of the uh, positions, the many hats that you've worn in your EMS career and math hat career (laughs) what uh so far has been just your absolute favorite oh gosh um my favorite i mean flying was my my favorite thing you know i i definitely um you know the the podcast was amazing and i have a deep um i have a deep love for teaching uh, you know, even simple classes like BLS classes, which I, this year I'll teach right around 400 BLS classes, uh, up, up in wow. this area. And so, you know, it's, it's like watching the same movie every day of your life, mm-hmm. <laughs> but, uh, but I have a deep passion for it. You know, you can tell when you've really rocked a class and you've made the class laugh and they've walked away knowing that they, they actually learned something new for the first time and they've been taking this class, you know, for the last 15, 16 years. Um, and they walk out of there and they're like, I actually learned something new today. Um, it's, it's almost like, a, you know, the way that any stage performer would feel when they really like crush the audience and they 
walk out of there with that high and they're like dude nothing can screw up this good mood that i now have today yeah uh, so i mean i have a deep deep passion for that um but i mean flying is is definitely the highlight of the career you know just the scope of practice and level of independence that you have and the level of trust that the providers have in you to make the right decisions uh, and you can have I think a much more lasting effect on the outcome of patients when you aren't operating with a hand and a foot tied behind your back. Yes, I agree. Flying and the critical care aspects of flying are 100% so much funner and so yes. much more enriching than a ground. And it's not to take away from ground because a lot of people love doing ground. Yeah, no, I mean, and I, I there were, you know, ground has its moments that are wonderful and amazing. But I, the thing that I actually would say about flight is that one of the things that hurts your soul in ground EMS is the constant dealing with the lowest echelons of society. And I don't say that in like a mean spirited way, but you know, when you walk into a, what maybe used to be a house back before it was destroyed and then people continue to occupy that building for another 20 years and you walk in and they are in their environment they're in their clothing and their environment and you're looking at them and you're like god like today is the worst day of your life but tomorrow will also be the worst day of your life and so on and so forth and you have to deal with that in ground ems every day and it hurts your soul and it makes you you know start to almost assume that people are kind of dirtbags until proven otherwise. Yes. And it's easy to fall into that trap. But in flight medicine, you don't do that anymore. You get all the sick patients that are what you, you know, thrive to get. And you're still treating the same people, but you're not treating them in their environment anymore. Oftentimes they're in a hospital bed in a gown with a horrendous diagnosis and you just get to play with the medicine. And you don't have to deal with all those environmental things. You don't have to see the things anymore. Um, and so I think that mental health and flight is so much easier to maintain than it is on the ground. And that's one of the big things too that I love about flight. I agree 100%. But do you have any suggestions uh, maybe to make it a little easier for those ground folks that prefer to stay in ground? Yeah, it's not your fault. <laughs> oh. oh, that touched my soul. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's not your fault. Um, you know, it's it's only your fault if you don't take the time to become an expert in every possible scenario. If you If you prep for a call when you get toned out, uh, you're going to feel like dog shit after the call. Right. And so, you know, my, my thoughts, my thoughts on how to combat the soul crushing nature of EMS is actually how I feel about PTSD and EMS. Like in my mind, cause I see it like every single day, um, and so I've developed this kind of like working theory for like what the what the two primary causes are of PTSD and just getting your soul sucked out of your body in EMS. And the first that, that I would love to talk about is that you completely lose your sense of self, um, which is an incredibly easy thing to do. And I'll expand on that and what that means. Okay. Um, and then the second is that you have a feeling of helplessness 
when you don't know exactly how to do the next thing that should be done. And both of those are controllable factors. And at the end of the day, both of them are your fault if you don't do something about it. Right. <laughs> so, you know, with, with the second thing, which is the easier thing to fix, uh, the, the complete, the, you know, the, the, the feeling of unsureness or helplessness uh, in how to treat a patient is that if you're not actively on a 911 call and you're at work, you should be studying and you should be doing things every single day. Because why do we not deal in air medical with as many bad memories as we do in ground EMS? It's because in the air medical world, we train every day. It's not only a part of the culture. I mean, it's a part of the rules, right? CAMES tells us that we must learn these things and we must show competency in these things. And so when you spend time thinking through the logistics of doing every small little thing that you possibly can in every little situation, when it comes to you know pediatrics or high-risk obstetrics or neonatal medicine or whatever, whatever topic you hate, if if you become an expert in that thing, the 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 demons seem to go away. Because if you do everything correctly, and you are there's no doubt in your mind that nothing else could have been done no change could have been affected by a different action of yours that shit won't wear on your soul it just it doesn't right because you don't have this feeling of helplessness you don't have this unsureness about your actions anymore um and so i feel like if you spend the time to educate yourself a lot of those demons start to go away Hopefully that makes sense. And it wasn't. Yes, it did. It did make sense to me. <laughs> but the the other thing um, that I think is actually incredibly important is maintaining a very active sense of self, right? So when you before you got into EMS, and if you can remember back that far, <laughs> but uh, before you got into EMS, like who made you you? Like, what were the things that I that that identified you as like, this is who I am, Sam, as a person? That's a huge question. <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> I feel like yeah. that's a loaded question, too. But I, sure. uh, that's so funny. Um, I, it's you a, know, my, my it's a hard father, question. it is, it's a very hard question. My father was a police officer, and I think that I based a lot of my actions and attitudes off of who he was. Mm -hmm. bear, bear in mind that I also got into EMS very young at the age of 18. Yep. 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 Me too. Um, yeah. Which it's so it's hard when it shapes you into an adulthood, but you know, if you, yes. if you ask somebody who's not in the medical field, like at all, and you say, what are the things that people would say about you in terms of like, you know, who you are in your community. And most people would say your family, your religion, your hobbies, the school program you go to, um, you know, and, and, and a number of other small things, right? You know, who you volunteer with in the community, you know, the, the teams you're coaching, whatever it is. But when you get into EMS, what's the cardinal sin that every single baby EMS person commits? It's that they work seven days a week. Yeah. And not only do they work seven days a week, but they're working shift work. So you have this 
inability to do any of the other things because you always work on Sundays. So you're definitely not going to church. You work seven days a week, so you don't see your family anymore. And when you do, you're exhausted. You work every day, so you definitely do not have time to finish that woodshop project. And you used to do, you know, used to do woodshop stuff every day. You are too busy to go back to school. So if school was part of your sense of self, that's not it anymore because you don't have any time for that. Um, and so you only have this one final piece of that puzzle that makes who makes you who you are, and that's your job because it's the only thing that you have time for now. Mm -hmm. And so that's why you talk to any paramedic and you say like, you know, hey, who are you? They say, you know, my name's Austin. I'm a paramedic, right? Because that's the only thing that you are. Yeah. It's the only thing that gives you a sense of self. And if that's the only thing that you are, and that's the most important part of your life, that shit will weigh on your soul because everything that happens in that job that you do not have an immediate span of control over is going to hurt you. And that's also why we have a lot of people in EMS that get pissed when changes happen at the company, right? If there's a medication that gets switched to a different concentration, yeah. we get infuriated. And we're like, where did this crazy like sense of entitlement come from that I got so angry that we switched to a different piece of equipment that's actually better than the last one we used to use? And it's because I didn't have a say in the decision. And this job is the only thing that gives me a sense of self. And so I will get angry with change yeah. because we need to maintain a span of control over our lives. So I think that if people stop working all those damn overtime shifts, make an absolute effort to do the things that are not EMS related, that make you happy, like your hobbies or your church or going to school or spending time with your family and children, it needs to be something, right? EMS at the end of the day should be the least important aspect of your, of your life. And that's not to say that you shouldn't be an absolute expert in every possible, you know, little sub piece of medicine, because you should, if you want to be effective at what you do, but when you're not at work, Dude, you should be doing other things to create a sense of self. Um, I think that those two things, though, together uh, would help to combat a lot of the badness that we see in ground EMS. And that, I mean, I, I'm not going to lie. What you just said was very, very profound. And maybe <laughs> that comes from somebody who worked those seven days a week for several, several years. But that can also work for like, ER nurses, you know what oh, I mean? Yeah. That's like they who just throw themselves into their work, you know, they do the ICU nurses, all the people that are, you know, trying to be bigger and better at what they do. Mm -hmm. That yeah. can go into anything. So let me let me reverse that and ask who you are. <laughs> I I'm a father and a husband first. Um, I'm a teacher. Uh, I'm uh, I use woodshop as an example, because I'm an avid woodworker I figured <laughs> um, <yeah>, you can <laughs> um, but uh, everything in this house I've I've essentially built including that big tree house you can see out there behind me it's amazing um, <laughs> <laughs> a tree chalet if you will um, <laughs> but uh, uh, and I'm you know and I'm a, a friend and I'm a skier um, and I'm an avid fisherman um and uh yeah i mean there's so many and i'm i'm a catholic um there's there's so many things that i think give me a sense of purpose more so than my career 
Um, because at the end of the day, uh, you know, you will eventually have to leave this field. And yeah. if you're left with the shell of a, what a relationship once was, um, and you didn't spend any time with your kids and they can't stand you because they don't know you, uh, that's not a good place to be, right? That's not, that's really not a good place to be. Um, so who was I 10 years ago? I, I was that person 10 years ago, yeah. right? 10 years ago, I worked nine days a week and I had nothing. And, uh, and when you, you know, when we switched to a new IV pump, I was the first one to be pissed about it. And uh, it, it was actually um, a, a mixture of a talk that I heard and then a book that I read called Emotional Survival. It's actually a law enforcement book um, that uh, I've made, you know, kind of made all these realizations. And I, I think that the thing that helped me realize that I needed to prioritize work less and I needed to stop picking up overtime and, you know, just live within my means at that time was um, understanding the concept of hypervigilance in that um, the book, Emotional Survival and Law Enforcement. Not sure if you're terribly familiar with the term or not. Yes. You know, because a, a lot of people in our industry don't. And ER nurses, paramedics, um, uh, you know, firefighters, EMTs, we're all the same. And that our jobs are like a drug to us, right? You have this, and it doesn't matter if you're running calls all day on a 24 hour shift or not, right? Because when you, when that alarm goes off and you are heading into work, in your mind, even if you're not thinking that you're thinking this, in your mind, you're preparing for a bad day, right? You're preparing for a stand up 24 where you're getting your butt kicked all day and the calls are all gnarly calls. And so your epinephrine levels and your dopamine levels and your cortisol levels, they are hiked up in your body. And you're in this hypervigilant state, even if you don't know it, right? Your heart rate's not necessarily elevated, but you're in a hypervigilant stress state. That also makes you feel pretty freaking good though, right? Yeah. You feel pretty good. And not only do you feel good, but you also look pretty good too when you do it, when you're in that state, right? Your pupils are about a millimeter bigger than they otherwise would be. Your cheeks have a little bit more color in them. Your brain is functioning at 100% available capacity. So you're witty, you can make decisions very quickly. And so, I mean, this hypervigilant state is obviously incredibly necessary for us to be effective clinicians in the field. Uh, which is also why we meet most of our spouses at work when we work in in ED medicine, right? I am married yeah. to an emergency department nurse. Um, and I would say that I am a cliche of a paramedic, right? I'm married to an ED nurse, <laughs> a little, you know, 120 pound blonde ED nurse. But, uh, <laughs> um, yes, I am a basic bitch paramedic, that's for sure. But, uh, but, you know, we're in this crazy hypervigilant state. And so we're witty and we're attractive and we're sexier than we otherwise would be. And then we go home and you have to pay that piper, right? So yeah. for every, for every one minute that you have elevated cortisol and dopamine levels, you spend a minute in the trough. You have to spend a minute paying that piper. But when you work 12 hour shifts, then you go home for 12 hours and that entire 12 hour period of time that you're at home you're at a deficit and you don't start to pick back up to normal levels until you are on the car or on the car ride back to work again, you know? And so if you spend seven days a week working, you never feel good at home. 
which is also why all you want to do when you get home is sit in front of a TV. You don't give a crap what's on the TV, right? You just want to zone out and you don't want to make decisions. And when your spouse comes up to you and is like, you know, hey, sweetie, how was your day at work today? What do you want to do for dinner? The last thing you want to do on this planet is make the decision of what you would like to have for dinner. Right. Which is why those arguments happen in the driveway. You're pulling yeah. out you're like, what do you want? I don't care. What do you want? I don't care. Seriously, pick something. What do you want? And, uh, and you know, so you're, you're easily irritable and you're, you're completely indecisive. And so, you know, if you work less, spend less time in that hypervigilant state, spend more time with the people that matter most, spend more time doing your hobbies. Uh, you know, you can regain that sense of self and, the inevitable part is, is that you are going to have to work a little bit, uh, you know, at least your full-time hours minimum. And so if you want to have an enjoyable home life, you need to prepare for your home life while you're at work, right? Because I can guarantee you that that conversation in the driveway that ended up with you guys yelling at each other because nobody wanted to figure out what the hell to do for dinner, if you had taken the time at work when you're between calls and you're in your sexy, hypervigilant, witty state to immediately come up with some restaurant that you've been wanting to try. And then you get on their website and you look at their menu and you find something that your wife would like to eat, right? And you're not gonna do it for her, but you're giving her the options. And you look at their drink menu and you're like, dude, I know she'd be all over that. And uh, so then when you get home and you're on autopilot and you're indecisive, that conversation in the driveway looks way different, right? Mm -hmm. Like, you're like, oh yeah, no, what do I want for dinner? Oh, I was actually thinking about going to Vintage. I actually looked at their their uh, website menu earlier today and I found this, you know, this crispy chicken salad that I think you'd be all over with a little bit of pasta on the side. And then they've got this drink that you like. Um, because not only are you going to not have to have those conversations anymore, but uh, you're also probably going to get laid that night. <laughs> which is that's the entire goal <laughs> which is the goal right that's the goal um so yeah i mean hopefully that uh that wasn't too rambly but uh no I've, not at all i've taken a lot of time to think about these things over the years and uh and all the the things that i did incorrectly uh in the beginning of my career and if i could do it all over again i would have done those things very differently for sure yeah, no, that was a great answer. And I know you haven't listened to a lot of the episodes, but we actually do talk about hypervigilance quite a, quite a bit. That's we awesome. also yeah. we also talk about um, emotional intelligence, and you have a very high level of emotional intelligence, which is nice. And I don't mind it if you ramble because what you're saying does make sense, and it's <laughs> very smartly put, which is nice. So you talked about if you could if you could do it all over again, you would. But do you have any other? big regrets in your life that you would change? Yeah, you know, I I think that when you're younger and you're getting into EMS and you don't have the energy to have conversations, um, the easiest thing for you to do is to argue for the intent to hurt so you can get away from the conversation and uh, and go back to being a slug right because mm -hmm. uh, you don't want to invest the time if you want your life to be happy and you want to feel fulfilled and you want people to see you in the same way that you see yourself you have to take the time to speak to people for the sake of understanding what they're saying and not speak for the sake of escaping the conversation 
uh, you know, I, I think that that's probably the biggest thing that uh, that I would that I regret is when I was 23, 24 years old, I think if you polled about 90% of the people at my ground agency and said, if you had to explain Austin Kaiser in one word, what would it be? I guarantee you 90% of them would have said asshole. And, uh, <laughs> and, uh, and I would love to redo that for sure. Um, you know, it's taken a lot of years to rectify some of those hurts that I have definitely uh, said in the moment when I'm tired and pissed and I don't want to, you know, I just don't want to talk, um, you know. Uh, so, yeah, I would definitely, definitely redo that 100%. You definitely, you, you, uh, you're definitely talking to the soul and you can tell you're definitely talking from the soul and it's very refreshing. While we're on that topic, do you have any, like, and I know you probably talked about it in your podcast, but do you have any big mistakes um, or anything embarrassing that that you would want to share with other people so that they maybe don't also yep. have those problems? Yeah, I mean, I don't know if I would say like really embarrassing stories or anything like that, but you know, I have talked about it in in my podcast some of my biggest failures, I suppose you could say, and. And they they really all you know they they really all lead back to just a lack of of understanding exactly what I was doing and and because in paramedicine it's actually really an unfortunate part of EMS education that you gain a lot of confidence when you're in med school like a lot of confidence right and it's kind of a vicious cycle that happens when you become an EMT as well. Um, because when you become an EMT, you get out of school and you kind of think you know some things, right? You're very confident about what you know. And it's really not until you get on a box and you're driving the medic around and you get to those first few like critical sick calls or a kid call that you realize like, oh my God, like I actually kind of don't know shit. And, uh, and it, that's a hard realization to have, but then you get into medic school and then for some reason you fall into that same trap, you know, and, and maybe it's different, uh, different medic schools around the country. But I know in my medic program, like I came out of that real confident about my abilities, yeah. uh, but also at that time, which granted was a long time ago and, and, and it could be very different in, in medic programs today, but at the time it was not really talked about that like when you graduate this program you know about a fifth grade level of ems we need you to get to a 12th grade level of ems but you have yeah. to do that on your own we can't teach you that you have to gain experiences and you have to study on your own and become an expert in all of these things but yeah they don't they, they didn't tell me that I was graduating with a fifth grade reading level when I when I graduated medical school. And, you know, so on the podcast, I, you know, I, I talk about a couple calls in particular. One was a, you know, an error of omission, which I think is actually the most common type of fatal error in EMS uh, that, you know, they're not actively making a medication error or, or having an unrecognized esophageal intubation or something. It's oftentimes that you have a patient that has some sort of presentation that you just don't know what the hell it is. And, uh, and so instead of making a phone call and trying to ask for help or, um, you know, or at least doing something, 
that is a treatment pathway for something similar that you have in your kind of injury script vault in the back of your mind uh you know we tend to freeze and just use a little vitamin d a little diesel to get them to the hospital as quickly as possible and uh and then the patient dies and so you know i have a couple examples on on the podcast one one in particular was the an elderly woman who had some funky rhythm that i had no idea what it was and instead of doing something i just froze and interestingly enough if uh if i would have fallen back on you know even like acls at the time and uh, when her blood pressure started to become garbage i could have just gone to like a cardio version on this patient who as it turns out had atrial fibrillation with wpw uh, which was a rhythm that i just didn't know back then and uh, so i didn't recognize it i didn't know what it was um, but if I had fallen back on kind of my at least baseline training, I probably would have saved that woman's life. But I just had no idea what it was, and I froze. And uh, you know, and I I was terribly ashamed at the time that I froze. But I think my immediate defense mechanism was like she was just super sick. I couldn't do anything. There was nothing to be done. And so it really wasn't until years later that I kind of came to that nightmarish wake up that like, oh my god, I. I murdered that person, you know, yeah. I, that, that was a true error of omission and that's still murder uh, in medicine anyway. So, you know, I, I don't know that I have a ton of prime examples anymore. Um, I've probably re-blocked those out of my memory since I did those podcast episodes. Yeah, no, I don't, uh, that actually was, a, that was a great example. Um, and so it kind of brings up another topic I'm sure you remember because you've been teaching for a while, but if you recall in our older ACLS classes, they used to have like all of the strips that you had to memorize. Right. Yeah. And recently they've gone to, well, if it's fast and narrow, you do this. If it's fast mm -hmm. and wide, you do this. Right. So they take out a lot of that options. Yeah. And I feel like that's probably why they do that. Right. They want to help you from, if you're going to freeze because you don't recognize exactly what it is, do this. Yes. Yeah. I, you know, I think that there's a lot of that in medicine in general though, of, and I don't want to necessarily call it catering to the lowest common denominator. No, definitely not. But I think what it is, yeah, LOL. Um, <laughs> I think what it is, is the American Heart Association needs to make this as simple as possible because the vast majority of people in medicine are new under five years. It is impossible for you to have a certain level of expertise in medicine today because everybody's new. And so they have to make it as simple as possible. And what they do is they look at these algorithms and they say, okay, what rhythms are not accounted for in this algorithm? All right, there's two of them. Um, you know, or there's three of them rather. And like, we'll say the tachycardia algorithm. How, what percentage of patients of total all comers are presenting in one of those three rhythms? Oh, it's only 4%. Okay, so if you're saying that if you blindly follow this checklist without actually using your brain, you'll save 96% of your patients. Those are pretty good odds. That's a, that is an acceptable level of failure, right? An yes. acceptable loss that we're willing to take. 4% of patients potentially die from using this algorithm. That's pretty good. Uh, and I, you know, so there is a good part to that, that it makes it simple enough for basically anybody to follow. 
but it also makes it to where, yeah, you're going to probably mark about 4% of those patients. Um, and, uh, you know, you're specifically talking about things like toxicological problems and AFib with WPW and those types of rhythms like that, where it's like, yeah, you don't see those every day, but when you do see it, you'll kill that person to death. Yeah. You follow that algorithm. Hopefully you'll recognize, but if not, then <laughs> yes, yeah. Fo yeah. Follow your local protocol, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, love that boilerplate statement. <laughs> <laughs> so, I know you talked a little bit about how you um, about PTSD specifically, and how you feel like education uh, would kind of help relieve a lot of those symptoms. But do you have any PTSD from, you know, working on the ground or working in flight that you still deal with? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's real for sure. You know, any, anybody, anybody who still rolls around with the mentality of like, if you can't handle the heat, get out of the kitchen. Um, they're just a pile of shit. I mean, those, those old timers need to go away in my mind. Uh, you know, I, I see that kind of stuff every day and I, and I feel it every day. You know, I, I, interestingly enough, um, I think that most of the dark places that you can go into, most of the recurring, you know, recurring memories that you can accidentally fall into when you're driving by yourself or when you're sitting on a couch late at night and everybody else in the house has gone to bed. Uh, those are, first of all, those are dangerous places to be. <laughs> if you're struggling, don't find yourself in those places. Yes, but they are. Uh, uh, yeah, don't be alone on a couch somewhere and don't be driving alone. But, uh, you know, I, I think that most of those things actually affected me like much later, you know, much way after those calls happened. Um, you know, I, one, one call in particular uh, didn't, uh, well, two two calls in particular i would say unifyingly are you know two of my worst memories in ems but uh they definitely like didn't affect me in the moment and they seem to affect a lot of other people in the moment um they affected me much later on but interestingly i would say that overall the people who were you know affected in the moment and emotional about it in the moment are probably a lot better off than i am or, or that i was anyway you know because i i definitely had a had a tendency uh, in EMS to not view patients as people, right? And I, that's my defense mechanism. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, judge me for it or not, but uh, no judging. Uh, but I, yeah, but I don't. Um, I don't think of, uh, and I say I don't. I, I I tend to feel a little differently now. But for a long time in EMS, you know, I didn't think about patients as human beings, right? It was just a meat sack with bottle signs. It was like playing a video game. And the video game had some shitty vital signs and I needed to make those vital signs a little bit better. Uh, and so, <clears throat> um, you know, that was the way that you combat it. But I think that that stuff years later, you start to attach faces to those vital signs and it starts to hurt you a little bit more. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, uh, I think that in typical, you know, I guess bravado fashion, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that I would classify myself as having PTSD um, and maybe a clinical sense anyway of having recurring dreams and, and you know, struggling potentially with some depression uh, or, or withdrawal from, uh, you know, from friends and family. But, I mean, I, I definitely get nervous every single time I back out of my driveway when I know that they're, that my children were in the front yard. Um, you know, I definitely 
will go places all of a sudden in my mind when I hear somebody say a specific sentence or word and uh, and all of a sudden I'll zip back to some place that I was you know standing in uh, 10 or 12 or 15 years earlier and then I have to like pop myself back out of it and be like what the f like don't go there don't go to that place we're here right now um, you know, and so I, uh, I, you know, I don't know if that's common or not. Mm -hmm. um, I actually, I actually don't, uh, and really haven't spoken about this topic with uh, anybody. You're actually the first person really ever that I've had any type of conversation about post-traumatic stress. Well, then I'm honored. <laughs> I uh, actually, believe it or not, that is a fairly common thing. Um, and I, I think that's common everywhere, not just in EMS, but um, yeah. It's uh, PTSD can affect so many people in so many different ways. And the way that you talk about it actually brings up a good point too, because there's your common PTSD, right? Where you're having those flashbacks and you're having those memories, but then there's so many other forms of PTSD. Like you're, like you're talking about uh, with, it could just be a lack of education and like just you talking about it is taking me back to to calls where i had where like i didn't recognize something because i didn't understand it and i wonder how that affected that patient i mean ultimately that we got him to the hospital you know but could there or could there have been a different outcome if i had done something and it definitely takes you back to thinking about that and it's not the first time i've thought about it but you bringing light to that aspect of it definitely makes me think about it um do you feel comfortable sharing your stories? Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, my <laughs> when I was preparing for this episode, I actually it's uh, it's really funny. But, you know, you 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 uh, you know, in the kind of interview format, you had looked at or presented me with two questions, right? What are your what are your fondest memories of EMS, and what are your worst memories of EMS? And uh, I had to whittle down the worst memories list to two, right? Yeah, no, <laughs> uh, for you sure. Could come up, you can come up with a bunch of them. But I, without exaggeration at all, I sat in my office for 30 minutes silently thinking about my two best memories or my two fondest memories. It was hard to do. And I'm yeah. like, what the hell? I know I've had a great time in my career. I've had so many good times where I'm laughing harder than I've ever laughed in my entire life. And I'm building these, you know, these trauma bonded relationships with my peers and some of my best friends in the world are you know are paramedics and uh but you can't it's it was hard for me to think about those ones for some reason i couldn't find those stories anymore <laughs> uh, but yeah i was like what's your worst memory at ems i was like boop 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 yeah. <laughs> just started, started yeah. uh yeah, yeah. it's uh, i i would say that that's <laughs> almost a form of ptsd right like you can recall them way faster and i think you know, it, it actually really, I'm going to bring it up since we're talking about it. I, it really is amazing how many people say, I put all of those stories in a box. You know, I oh, yeah. could not recall any of that. But if you, if you're not on a podcast and you're not being recorded and I'm sitting next to you and we're sharing stories, we will be on the floor rolling, laughing with just the stupid shit that people do. You know what mm -hmm. I mean? Like, Yes, and it's yes. you put people on the spot and they're like oh nope i don't remember i can't recall and it's just so funny because it's yeah 
it's it, yep. no, it's great listening. though it's great i have a blast every time i do this and i i try to prepare some people and some people it's like i know we're gonna have a good time it doesn't matter if i send them the sheet or not like <laughs> yeah you know <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> i appreciated my little sheet so i can make a bunch of notes all over it um, which is how i do all or did all of my podcasts they weren't you know weren't read from a script i used to just draw a bunch of pictures and then i would like explain the pictures as i was <laughs> recording the podcast <laughs> That's fantastic. uh, Yeah. I think that when I whittled down the list, um, you know, the, the call that I, you know, I would say I probably have not had, uh, and don't, you know, I don't, don't, don't call a therapist for me, but I think that there probably has not been a, you know, more than maybe a two or three day period in the last, you know, 12 years that I haven't thought about this call. Um, you know, in some way, and oftentimes the thoughts are only, you know, one second that's gone, but Mm -hmm. sometimes I think about it a lot more, but my, I was a preceptor at the time. This is when I was on ground still, and I was precepting a paramedic. Um, and back then, uh, you know, there's, there's probably only six of us preceptors really in the County. And so we could kind of get the, the pick of the litter, if you will, uh, from the paramedic program where I'm like, I'll take him first and then I'll take her. And so you were kind of drafting your team that you were going to precept for the next six months. And uh, uh, so this was my second intern from that paramedic year. And he had maybe, you know, 36. I mean, he was almost done. He had three or four shifts left and he was done at his 480. And uh, we get toned out. Um to a call uh, for an auto versus pedestrian, but it was a residential address and we didn't get really any information from that. And so we start cruising toward this call. It's a code three call uh, and we get about two minutes away. And at this point, my intern, um, you know, should be running all the calls independently. And so I was not in a mind space of controlling a call or running a scene, right? This was his show. I was only going to step in if absolutely necessary. There's also at a point in my career when I didn't think about doing education for myself either, right? I was just in this kind of in the grind. I was in the rut of EMS of of just doing the same thing every day. Didn't really care about my education that much. So we're about two minutes away and we find out that the pedestrian is a two-year-old and that the family has started CPR and in the driveway and we're like oh god and all of our you know that it got really really quiet in that ambulance all of a sudden because we were all having a good time and joking and laughing and stoked that we were finally going to get some like a good patient and maybe this guy's kind of fucked up and uh but that tone changed a lot when we realized he was a two-year-old so my intern though i could see this terror on his face and so i was like hey dude uh, I'll run this. You go ahead. You just back me up. So we get there. It's a two-year-old. Um, was just in a diaper um, and didn't have any other clothing on. It was a very nice house, uh, and the driveway was a really long hill um, up to this house, kind of on the hill. And the husband and wife had gotten into a fight. Um, I mean, not a physical fight, just a just a yelling argument. But I guess it got pretty heated. So the dad got in their big black um, SUV and uh, started backing down the driveway and ran his son over and killed him. And uh, so we worked this kid 
in uh, you know on the driveway for quite some time, and you know, and I'm I intubate him and do you know do the things, and uh, can't get pulses back, and I'm starting to assess him, and and I see that his belly's getting bigger, and so I'm like, yeah, okay, he's he's got an intra-abdominal bleed, it might be a pelvic bleed, it might be a liver lack, who who knows what it is, and you know, and then I assessed his head, and I hadn't realized up until that point, but his whole occiput that was crushed he had a, just mm. a massive basilar skull fracture this 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 child was dead forever um but through pressure at the scene from one of the supervisors um, that that showed up for the ambulance organization as well as the fire department um they were like we can't call this here we have to transport to the hospital and you know it's a 25 minute drive from this house to the hospital where we continue to work on this kid, you know, and uh, and then we get to the hospital and, uh, you know, and so at this point I've had time to kind of, this child is two. I also have a two-year-old son and uh, at that time, and I was definitely not in a good mind space, but, you know, I was keeping it together. And we get to the trauma bay at the hospital and the hospital team starts to kind of take over and the nurses are, falling apart which is making matters even worse they're like bawling while they're doing cpr on this kid which cry afterwards please um but the dad gets to the hospital somebody drove him in and he you know we kind of lead him in i actually met him um, at the ambulance bay doors and you know and he he's just a wreck you know and and i i didn't like there was no like anger toward this guy that i felt i just felt so awful for him you know it was like so bad for this dude and i led him into the trauma bay and he like laid his eyes on his dead two-year-old son on that table and he just collapsed and you know he just it was too much for him to bear and witness and he just collapsed and ended up just smacking his face on the floor super hard and busted his face open and you know so he's now bleeding on the floor and people are trying to get him up into a bed in trauma two while we're getting ready to call his son in trauma one and uh, so unsuccessful pediatric resuscitation and uh, but afterwards you know i spent that day kind of trying to like calm people down that were like the firefighters were kind of losing it and crying and my supervisor was bawling and i was hugging him and you know but the whole time i like for some reason had to be like the strong one in that scenario and because i'm also taking care of my intern who you know i've always always had that kind of parental protection feeling over my interns mm -hmm. you know like nobody nobody can yell at my interns but me um you know don't talk to my intern that's my intern but uh <laughs> so you know i'm trying to keep everybody together and uh my intern actually uh lived with me at the time he was like he was oh. renting a room in my, in my spare bedroom in me and my wife's house at that time so it wasn't like i could go home and continue to not be strong for this person and so I went, you know, we went home and uh, all we said that night, we, we got home. My wife, I think, was working still. So it was just him and me in the house. And uh, I, I poured myself some bourbon, poured some for him. And, you know, I'm kind of standing across the kitchen island from him. And I'm just like, you know, you good? And he's like, yeah, I'm good. You good? And I'm like, yep. And uh, then we never talked about it again. And 
it, but it that shit creeped up on me over the next few months and i never really you know processed it never did anything and um but i'll tell you what you know 12 or 13 years later however long ago that was um you know i get i get nervous every single time i back out of a driveway to this day anytime one of my kids is outside i get nervous about it and you know i i like roll down the windows and you know i'm like go stand right there so i can see where you are and while i back out of this driveway and the kids all know yeah right? they know like they don't they don't get to be in the cul-de-sac when i'm backing out they got to be on these steps so i can see them in front of me um you know, and, and I, I definitely think about that, the dad actually, probably even more than the kid, you know, I, yeah. I see that, that loss, that, how do you recover from something like that, knowing that you accidentally killed your own child, you know, uh, so yeah, that call yeah. sucks. Yeah. That yeah. one's definitely a heavy one, dude, and I'm so sorry that you had to go through that, you know, that is, that is rough, and I can tell in the way that you talk about it, that it does still bother you. Yeah, no, I, I, no, it, it does for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, it, it's probably a lot better process now. I mean, shit, five years ago, I probably wouldn't have told you that call, right? Yeah. That that call is is one that was going to remain buried for me. Um, but yeah, I mean, it it can take a long time to recover from those things, um, and you know, I think that at the time though, too, uh, one of the compounding factors is that I just. You know, I didn't have anybody to share that with, and I didn't have anybody to, um, you know, any anything else in my life that helped to deal with that in terms of, you know, whether it's your your faith or your spouse or your friends or you know or whatever it is. Like you know, if you if you don't water those relationships, that plant will die. And, uh, and I think at that time in my career, I, I, I hadn't watered those plants in a long time. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, you know, so it, it, uh, I think I was stuck with that one for sure. Yeah. Uh, one thing that you mentioned, and I just want to get your kind of opinion on, I kind of have an idea already, but you had talked about when it came to transporting that patient, that there was some pressure, um, maybe just, you know, in general on the scene was there pressure from your supervisor like if your supervisor hadn't showed up would you have made the decision to transport that child anyways no i i am 100 percent sure i would not have um even at that time in my career um i thought that one of the cruelest things that you could do to somebody is give them a false sense of hope uh, and as soon as you load up into the back of that ambulance and you start heading to the magical place that is the emergency department, that family starts to think that that kid can come back to life and you give them that false sense of hope, which is then just destroyed 35 minutes later when they finally call it. Um, I, I, the pressure came when I turned to my supervisor and I said, hey, can you make, make base contact with, with Mercy? You know, this kiddo has been in a systole for the last 30 plus minutes that we've been in this driveway and we've done everything we're out of medications um not that you know not that epi give matters at all in trauma codes but uh, but at that time we didn't know that um, yeah. <laughs> but, but uh but no i the the pressure started to come when i was requesting a termination of resuscitation so um I feel like actually one of the things that made it bear even harder on my soul was that was the family started to, they stopped grieving when I started to load that 
kid up in the back of the ambulance and they started to get that hope that somehow he would be alive on the other end of this thing and uh and i felt super guilty knowing that that's not what's going to happen here like i that kid was that kid was gone he there was nothing that i mean god could not have brought that kid back to life um and uh, uh so yeah i mean i i definitely would have terminated the resuscitation for sure yeah, no, it's that's been a topic of debate a couple of times too on the on a couple of, of other episodes, and I don't I don't blame anybody who feels that there is a certain level of security in transporting a pediatric patient. You know, if the if the family is super aggressive um, on the scene, honestly, it's just better to get out of there. But if you're in a good place where you feel like you can terminate, I think I do honestly think that that's the best thing that you can do both for that child and the family. And for you as a provider. Yeah. It's, I, there's, we operate at a certain level of medicine that like you, those things cannot be corrected, right? And I mean, the ED is not going to do anything that you're not going to do that you can't you know have the capacity to be able to do and so i you know i and i do not want this to come out wrong but i think that sometimes our you know our desire to run to the hospital in the absence of like a dangerous scenario or something like that yeah I'm trying to find a more PC word than the word that's on the tip of my tongue here, but uh, but I think that there's a little cowardice in that, and that's it's not that's like not the right word to use. But How about comfort. The comfort. There's comfort there in there it. Yes. yes, you are correct. Yeah, um, but it's you know it's it's not going to do anybody any good, and I think in the long run, you having to work this thing for no reason and you know it's completely useless to do what you're doing um you know for another 20 minutes all it's going to do is make it that much harder for you to accept that later right especially in a situation where you have obvious signs of death already right yeah on the on the other side though we do have a lot of burnout and people um might get to those codes and be like meh that person looks pretty toast to me like let's just call it (laughs) let's call medical control and just call this i don't feel like working this code right now you know so there's definitely both sides of that spectrum yeah the old the old burnout burnout paramedic where they're like they're 31 they had a good run they're dead yeah (laughs) yes exactly (laughs) 31 that's a great age right like a ripe ripe old age in the 1860s yeah yeah (laughs) Um, yeah no i i completely agree you know yeah it's hard because you can't you know you can't rubber stamp one thing and say it's the you know say this is the one size fits all for all of ems um that's that's very true um but i you know i i definitely think that when it comes to pediatric resuscitation honestly the worst thing you can do for the prognosis of a child is to scoop and run that that is that's not an opinion i mean that's a known fact like if you if you have a pediatric cardiac arrest the best possible thing you can do for that child is to stay where you are and work that thing right there um unless somebody's shooting at you but uh 
you know, fortunately for people like Dr. Peter Antevi over in Florida, we've got a lot of data to support that we should be sitting there doing everything that we should be doing and treating those kiddos the same way we treat adults uh, in, you know, in the, the stay and play mindset instead of the, you know, scoop and run. Yeah. Oh, there's so many. <laughs> there's a lot of studies that uh, go for that. And there's a lot of studies that say that we're not that we're taking too much time on scenes. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, you're, you're right. Yeah. No, it's, it's always, it's easy to find literature to support your narrative. That's for sure. <laughs> yes. Well said, perfectly said. Yes. <laughs> so um, <laughs> I'll give you the opportunity to talk about the second one, if you would like to, um, if yeah. not, if not, we can move on to a happier subject. Sure. <laughs> yeah, this one, I this one, you know, it's it's one of those weird, sneaky ones where to me, it wasn't a big deal. Uh, in the moment, it wasn't that big a deal. And then this one like slapped me in the face a couple of years later. And there were a lot of contenders that made it real close to this list. But I think the reason that this one bothered me so much is because it didn't bother me. And then it really bothered me afterwards. Uh, like, yeah, like, Four years later, oh. it started to bug me, and because uh, um, it really bothered my partner. My partner actually ended up taking like a stress leave after this call, and uh, but it didn't bug me at all. Um, and but then I started thinking about it years later, um, uh, which which was just really weird. And uh, but yeah, this was another. This actually was not a a pediatric arrest thing. Thankfully, I've had my fair share, but this was not sure. there. Um, but no, this second call, um, uh, we responded to a possible 1144, um, which I'm sure that's a universal 10 code that's used. 1144 is, not, no. is a dead, dead guy. Uh, in California, that's what we call dead people. Um, so yeah, we, but when you get toned out to an 1144, that means homie's dead and you're probably not doing a resuscitation. This is sure. dead for a while. Um, so yeah, getting an 1144 call is like getting a, uh, like, hey, there's a smell coming from that house call. <laughs> kind <of thing>. so, <laughs> so we're like, all right, you know, maybe this one looks like a balloon. And uh, Gross. so... <laughs> <laughs> hasn't quite popped yet and uh, uh which anybody who's a paramedic knows that but weirdly enough uh those are never some of our worst memories right where we no. like we we crack the door in the house and we're like fuck oh <laughs> like hey guys there's a dead one in here uh, like those are never your worst calls yeah which is so interesting to me those calls were definitely the ones that let me know that if you have a cat and you die that cat will start to eat your friggin' nose about four hours after death. You can't be, dogs will too. Dogs will too, 100%. Dogs will too. Dog, <laughs> I feel like dogs wait just a little bit longer though. They I think can, it depends they... on the dog. <laughs> true, Or true. May, maybe like yeah. the breed of the dog. Yes, that's true, that's true. <laughs> I've de yeah, dog. I've I've seen my my fair share of doggies that run out of the house with a red snout. That's for yes. sure. Yes. <laughs> but uh, but no, this call though. So we responded to this possible eleven forty four, and we get to the house, and the outside of the house looked um, really nice. Like it was a nice, you know, kind of like the the white painted stucco, you know, house mm -hmm. um, or the concrete siding, whatever they call it. And uh, nice front lawn, 
Um, and we walked in and I was just like crushed with this horrendous, nasty smell. But it wasn't like a rotting body smell. It was mm. like it was like alcohol and like filth and trash and cat poop. And uh, it was just this horrendous smell. And uh, in the house, the floor of the house was, you know, completely covered in, you know, trash and paper plates. Like I didn't know if I was sitting on standing on carpet or hardwood floors kind of thing. You know, it was yeah. a couple of inches thick. Um, and which is not uh, not an unfamiliar sight if you work in EMS. Every, every we've all been in those hoarder houses. Um, and on the countertops in the kitchen, it was there must have been two or three hundred bottles of like White Wolf and pop off vodka, like the half gallon plastic bottles of vodka. And this woman was on the couch um, and the couch was all, you know, jacked up like springs were poking out of this thing. And the woman is like hammered, right? She's basically unconscious. And, uh, and you know, I, we like wake her up and, uh, and she's just hammer slammered, had, you know, a vodka bottle in her lap. And, uh, and we're like, who called 911? And she's like, oh, the... And uh, she's like, my husband in the bath. And uh, she's so just, she's so inebriated, she can like barely speak. And so we turn the corner into this hallway to go try to find her mystery husband. And there's like a two-year-old, two or three-year-old in the hallway. And it, they're in a super dirty diaper and they're covered in like feces. Mm -hmm. But it wasn't human feces. And I know this because the kid was playing with a pile of cat shit in the hallway on the trash, right? And so mm. like covering themselves with this cat shit. Mm. And so I turned to my partner and I'm like, get this kid out of this house right now. I'm going to go find the husband. And so I'm looking in rooms and it's hard to get all the doors open in the rooms because there's so much trash on the other side of the door that you can't really get the door open very easily. So I look through a couple rooms and, you know, and open a bathroom by mistake because I'm, you know, I'm like, Jesus, like this is a porta potty that had been left out in the sun for too long. Uh. And so then I hear a rustling sound in, um, in this other room. And I go into the other room and on the bed, um, almost kneeling as if he was in like prayer, you know, kneeling on the side of the bed and then collapsed kind of onto the bed was the husband. Very clearly dead, had been probably dead for quite some time. So dead, I didn't put him on the monitor. But a child was also in the room, um, a young child, um, probably, you know, three or four, something like that. Young enough to not understand the concept of death. And this kid was climbing onto the bed, kind of sitting on his dad's like head and shoulders and then sliding off of his dad, like using his dad's back as a slide and sliding onto the floor and then climbing back up and using his dad's body as a slide again. So I grabbed that kid and we walk outside and I'm like, you know, and I think that there was just so much that happened in front of my eyeballs in that previous two minute period of time yes. that I was like, 
didn't process any of that. Yeah, you're like <laughs> quickly shut that down. That, <laughs> yes. that yeah, was, like, was overwhelming that for me that just to listen. My brain. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so, you know, we we get a hold of people, and and I'm like, yeah, it's confirmed 11:44, but we need CPS and the sheriff's department here right now. And uh, so we get CPS there. We're there for several hours. And I'm kind of coordinating things with like the sheriff's department, talking to them. I'm also helping to like subdue this wife who has all of a sudden woken up out of her stupor and is now kind of trying to fight us a little bit. And so I'm having to do a med clearance on this woman. And, uh, you know, and then the coroner gets there and yada, yada. And I'm kind of coordinating that. But the whole time my partner was actually in the back of the ambulance and he was cleaning these kids off. And he was, you know, taking gloves and making, you know, little blow up the balloons. balloons with the gloves and drawing clowns on them and stuff and playing with these kids for, I mean, for a solid two hours that we were out of service at this house and he looked fine. Um, and then CPS finally kind of loaded the kids up. And, uh, and as soon as they like got out of there, my partner just fell apart. And I mean, he fell apart and this is a, I call this guy the my partner. He's one of my favorite partners I've ever had, but he's called the gorilla. Um, he's a, a just big, you know, six foot two Samoan, uh, probably I mean pushing three twenty, you know, but yeah. not a not a chunky monkey three twenty. Like uh, he's built like a brick shit house three twenty. Yes, <laughs> with a little belly on him, but uh, but he could you know he could kill me with one hand and uh while his legs are tied together and uh and so the you know just this big massive guy just kind of fell apart and um and but i was just kind of like you know like yeah there's a dead guy and we got those two kids out of that shitty house I'm like whatever um and so it wasn't until years later that all of a sudden like i that call really bothered me like like years later and i started to kind of relive the the human body slide thing over and over in my head and mm. couldn't get that one out of my body for a little while um i definitely drank a lot <laughs> when that goal started to bother me uh yeah that's a that's a pretty fucked up story bro that's <laughs> jesus that was pretty bad that um uh, man i couldn't <laughs> i couldn't imagine man that's that's a tough one yeah yeah that was not a good day for sure yeah yeah so. Those are probably my two worst. I mean, they can only get better from there, I suppose. This is very true. This is very <laughs> true. <laughs> Not to dampen the mood. I'm yeah. I'm, now I'm having horror stories listening or thinking about your listeners hearing that story and going like, Jesus Christ! <laughs> You're setting off everybody else's PTSD. <laughs> right. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> we should say trigger warning in front of that. Uh, front oh, of that. Oh, I yeah. do. Don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I trigger warning every episode. <laughs> yeah. <that's, yeah. laughs> oh man, that's that's a rough one, dude. And I, I don't know if I would say I'm happy to say, but I'm pleased to say that you know the. There are several providers that don't see anything that bad in their entire career, which is good. Yeah. You know, some of us just have that little shit stamp on our foreheads that says you're going to see some fucked up shit. Yeah. And then some of us don't. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, you know, one of the I definitely like I'm not you know, this I'm not going to tell this story. Um, we're going to shift to happier days here in a second. But yeah, um, but no, I mean, I've I have had um, a lot of that. Yeah, uh, you know, I, I, 
the uh, there was a series of calls that actually almost broke me um, very early in my career, very, very early in my career. I had been a paramedic for no more than God, three or four months, maybe. Um, and we the small organization that I worked for had 72 hour shifts. And uh, uh, and during the 72 hour period of time, I had three dead children in five. Oh, calls. Dude. Yeah. Uh, three dead kids and five calls. Um, mm. When I say five calls, I mean five pediatric calls. So I had five pediatric calls in the 72-hour shift. Three of the five children died either in front of me or at the hospital later. Um, and I left. I didn't finish my 72-hour shift. I actually left in the middle of the shift and went home. I lived about an hour and a half away from where my station was. But went home, cried, drank everything that I had. <laughs> I'm and I, yeah, I mean, I was like, I was like, cool, got done with my first fifth of Maker's Mark. Let's move on to the next one. And uh, yuck, uh, yuck is correct. Um, and I did not go back to work for about two weeks. Thought for sure that I was going to leave EMS forever. I was like, this is too heavy. Like, I can't deal with this. Uh, and at that time, too, you know, I had, um, I had a, my daughter was probably three. And my son was like one. Uh, my my the oldest one was like one, and because uh, now we have six, we got a bunch of those little shites now. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> uh, but in and two of the one of these one of these five calls was a traffic accident, a small Honda Accord versus a truck, and uh, in the Honda was a, a mom driver, dad in the passenger seat, and then a three year old girl and a one year old boy in the back seat. Husband was the only one that survived the accident. Oh. Um, yeah yeah the, the the two the two children were alive when i got there but they were dead within a within a couple hours yeah that's a rough accident man yeah yeah and so and that that started the shift and then it just got worse from there um so yeah i mean i definitely feel like i have that that rubber stamp on my forehead that says you know you're gonna get shit on your entire career yeah <laughs> yep <laughs> but you know i i don't regret it at all though you know, I don't, um, there's no like, woe is me. I wish this didn't happen to me because every single thing that happens to you in EMS, all, every single experience that you have, good, bad, or otherwise makes you into the person that you are eventually. Right. And so unless you're looking at the mirror today and you say, I fucking hate everything about me and my entire life and my circumstance, um, you know, unless you say that, like you can't anything that you've done or said or experienced because it made you the person that you are today and so if you like who you are today in this moment don't regret shit like it's they're all just experiences you know exactly. but they molded you into who you are so that's my take on it anyway this is so cliche but <laughs> my wife told me about and I can't I can't quote anything but um she told me the story about this guy who wanted a quote that would encompass like knowing that if you're in a shitty time it's going to get better but mm -hmm. also if you're having the best time of your life right it's going to end yes. and and the quote was this too shall pass yeah very it's so, and it, it's so true. yeah oh it was so profound like i have goosebumps right now talking about it like that i she told me that and i was like i am keeping that because that's yeah. you have to remember that if you're in a bad time it's going to go away 
It's mm -hmm. not going to last forever. And if you're having the best time of your life, that's also not going to last forever. No, it will not. Bad things <laughs> will happen to you and amazingly good things will happen to you. It's, it is what it is. And you should not want it any other way because yes. unless shitty things have happened to you, you won't even know when something good happens to you because you have no point of reference. Yes. And I love that so much. Like it's definitely something to keep with you every day. You know, yeah. it sucks no. right now, but it's not going to suck forever. Yeah. No. And yeah. Time does heal most wounds. Yes. Most. most. <laughs> so, I didn't say time heals all wounds. <laughs> <laughs> Do you want to share one of your favorite stories? Yes, I will share one of my favorite stories. And this seems like a weird favorite story. Not at all. But uh, this was actually with the gorilla. And the reason I'm not saying his actual name is because I don't know if he, I didn't, I actually was just talking to him earlier today. Him and I haven't worked together for 10 years, but I, him and I actually just talked talk to each other on the phone today. Um, but, and I should have asked him if he, if he wanted me to use his name. But, uh, so me and uh, we'll call him Mark. That is not his name. Uh, we were cruising around downtown. Uh, we were actually on our way from one post to another. Uh, we do it like a system status back then, you know. And uh, so we get a call that was just a, it wasn't toned out to a call. It was a, like a band wide or a, or a system wide notification that a bystander had called on X and X intersection stating that he had seen a male subject dragging a female subject into the bushes. And that was it. That's so and vague. So, <laughs> so vague. And so we kind of look around and I'm like, we're there. We're, we're fucking right here where, the, where, where this just got reported. So we start cruising around the block and this block is really weird. And so like you can see it on the camera, but it's really weird. So you have this lower street and then you have like a U-turn and it goes up the street. So there's kind of like a cliff face between these two road elevations. And so we're on the top and then we cruise around down toward the bottom and, and I'm looking out my passenger window in the ambulance and he's looking out his driver's side window and he all of a sudden like rips it off the road and slams the brakes on and he doesn't actually say anything to me. He's just like, come on. And, uh, and so I'm like, what the hell? And so I look up the hillside. And when I say hillside, I mean, this is a cliff, essentially, right? It is a like a few degrees off 90. And I look up and almost all the way up at the top is this maybe 19 year old little skinny blonde girl hanging by a necktie from a bush. And oh my goodness. Uh, there's a small little kind of outcropping where she was and he had tied her, you know, tied a necktie around her neck and pushed her and she was hanging and she was limp. And uh, so this seems like a bad story. It's not. Um, <laughs> and so uh, my partner starts just conquering this hill with his <laughs> hands and feet. I mean, hands and feet, he is running up this like a wild animal. And and I'm like, the fuck? And so I'm like trying to get up it and I'm like slipping and uh, <laughs> like sliding down. And I'm like, 
how did you get up there? And, uh, and I'm, you know, I'm struggling at the bottom and, uh, and I finally get about halfway up and he has, you know, he's up there now and he's taken the weight off. And so she's no longer being suspended by her neck. I am clearly not capable of being manly enough to get up there because I am like halfway <laughs> up and I can't get up there. So this gargantuan fucking human that I work with, who's also when he's not at work, he's like the gentlest person on the planet. Yeah. He puts her over his shoulder and grabs the necktie and snaps it. Not <laughs> Oh my goodness. Not breaks the branch. He rips this freaking silk necktie in half and detaches her from the tree. <laughs> and then he starts to come down the hill with her. He's kind of sliding down the cliff with her over his shoulder until he gets to me. And in my mind, I'm like, well, I need to be a contributing member of this society. And so I'll help him down. I'll stay on the downhill side and support him, which is a joke because he weighed 310, 315. <laughs> I was training for marathons at the time. And so I was like maybe 155 pounds and uh, he, which he would have just murdered me, right? So we get about 10 more feet down this hill, but I'm looking up the hill at him. I'm not looking down the hill at my feet. And I hit a little piece of a manzanita bush with my ankle. So I start to fall backwards and I am going to fall backwards and get seriously injured. Yes. And he catches me by the chest of my uniform and so i am he has this feet this dead female on his shoulder and he is grabbing me with his other hand and i'm suspended like a baby <laughs> with him holding my the chest part of my uniform and like the like Dwayne the Rock Johnson in a hero movie he just looks me like dead in the eye and there is no jokingness happening he just goes I got you <laughs> and I just lost my shit <laughs> like I laughed so hard when he said that um I just like like lost it it was just like the silliest dumbest thing and uh, uh, and I, that that story would not probably oh. be amazing, but we got this girl down. At this point, remember, nobody even knew that we were there, right? Yeah. He didn't. He didn't say like Shascom, we found her. Um, he, he just got out and tore up this hill like a freaking animal. And uh, so we get back down. I start compressions on this girl. I get the necktie off of her neck. And he calls, you know, for everybody to come come get us or to come help us. So fire department gets there. We get Rosk on this girl. And then three days later, when they were doing a sedation vacation in the ICU, she sat up and extubated herself. And her first words were, where the fuck am I? So she also had amazingly good neurological status. Sounds like it. So uh, super good outcome all around. And they found the shit bag that ended up hanging her. He had run into a grocery store across the street. They caught him on camera. And uh, so so she lived and she completely fully recovered from this injury. Um, but I just like in that moment, it was the funniest thing that I had like ever experienced in my life. I was like, <laughs> 
I'm like in a movie right now. Like this guy looking at me as he saves me from falling down a cliffside. And he's just like, I got you, bro. Um, it was just, <laughs> it was the best. Uh, and so that that is my fondest memory of EMS. That is absolutely fantastic. I wish I could have been there. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah. amazing. Yeah. That like, I, where's the film crew? Yeah. <laughs> I honestly probably would have done the same thing. I probably would have just started cracking up laughing. Yeah. Just because he said that. <laughs> and a, yeah, and a non-EMS person would not have done that because they're like, "Oh my god, you have like there's like a dead girl on his other shoulder." Um but uh but yeah, it was in the moment there was nothing funnier for sure. Yeah. That, I'm sure uh, I'm sure that brought up some pretty awesome laughs afterwards, and I bet you guys just crack up about it every once in a while. Oh, there there wasn't a there was not an EMS person in the county that did not know about that story <laughs> afterwards, <laughs> and his heroic life saving voice when he caught me in midair as I was falling down a cliff. Yeah. <laughs> that is so. Oh man, I wish I would have been there. That is yeah. just the best story I've ever heard. Thank you for sharing that with me and for sharing it with everybody else. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> I will text him and tell him if he thought it was annoying that 50 people knew that story. Now a lot more people are going to know that story. Yes, just a little more. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I want to give you the opportunity to kind of, if you want to share anything, um, I'll give you a few minutes to share and then we'll work on closing up. Sure. Yeah. Uh, kind of a, uh, into like a hot ones episode where they like, and what do you got going on in your life? That's right. Um, so, uh, yeah, no, I mean, uh, just, just finishing up my second book, you know, my, my first book that I did, which was the flight medics guide to mechanical ventilation, um, that, uh, that book did like amazingly well, we still sell, you know, probably 12 or 1500 copies a year, which is like amazing and awesome. And I'm so blessed like every day that people want to read the friggin' stuff that I decide to put down. Um, I, I've, I've tr it's truly, truly humbling that people trust me enough to listen to it and to kind of support, you know, support us and support my family. I'm so deeply appreciative to, the, to everybody for that. Um, but my second book is coming out. It's called The Flight Medic's Guide to Airway Management um, and talks a lot about, uh, you know, safe pre-oxygenation and airway management and airway interventions and different techniques that you can use to be successful um, when you're intubating. And uh, so I'm hoping that you guys will give that one a try too. But I, I have your first one and I am very much looking forward to the second one. <laughs> Good. Well, I really appreciate that. Yeah, I really, really appreciate that. It uh, It's taken me, uh, it actually took me a lot longer to write this one than it did my first book um, because I wanted it to uh, encompass like a lot more. Um, so it starts off really, really basic, but um, it really delves into a lot of the questions that people have um, and, and just the importance of it. But the hardest part about uh, this is that uh, a lot of people think that they're really good at it already. Yes. And so I had to take some time in the book to really look at the numbers and maybe change a few minds about, I guess, their, their current practice. Um, and so well, hopefully it's received very well. But uh, not meant, it's definitely not meant to be an attack, but it's meant to be almost a, a call to action to continue to do better. Yeah, it's very eye-opening, which is good. We need it. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, but that's it. That's what I've got going on. And then just running, you know, running the business and, 
and uh, couldn't couldn't be happier to say that I'm basically officially retired. From yeah, the I don't blame. I'm super jealous, man. That's fantastic. <laughs> what uh, what's your website, real quick? Yeah, it's uh, kaisercpr.com, which is just K-I-S-E-R-C-P-R.com. So it's just kisser with one S. Um, and uh, you'll find all of our reference material. You'll find the first book very, very soon. You'll find the second book. Uh, we make a lot of reference cards for vet management, lab interpretation, and then we're just releasing an airway management checklist as well as a, a CPAP and BiPAP card here in the next few weeks. Um, and then, uh, as you know, we're also an American Heart Association training site. So we, you know, we teach about 10,000 students a year and all the AHA classes and everything like that. That's fantastic, man. Sounds like you're doing good. And like you've said, you're in quite a successful position enough to retire from bedside. And that's huge. <laughs> that is freaking huge, man. So congratulations. Uh, thank you. Uh, like I said, I'm looking forward to that second book. And then I want to also give you the chance to say your mantra before we close up. Yes, absolutely. My mantra is the NASA mantra, right? Which uh, uh, if you guys, you guys, are you familiar with the, the NASA mantra? I am not. So very, very quick story. So um, when the uh, one of the Apollo rockets was getting ready to launch, uh, one of the astronauts actually went up into a capsule door that was open in one of the rockets. And he found a technician that was in there and he was, you know, building, building something. He was kind of tinkering with a little wrench. And uh, the astronaut was like, you know, you guys are you guys are so amazing. Like, I just don't understand how you know how to build all these things, you know, like I sure I can fly it. I'm a pilot, but I just don't understand the technology that it goes to build one of these things. And this rocket engineer was like, I don't know how most of this stuff goes together either. That's not my job, right? My my job is actually just this single system within this much larger rocket. But I can tell you one thing, I am an expert at that one piece of equipment that needs to be in here to make this thing function properly. And I can also promise you that this thing will not fail because of me. And that's my mantra. It will not fail because of me. And if you say that to yourself every day when you're feeling lazy and you don't want to crack open the book and you don't want to watch that video, but you know in your heart of hearts that you're not an expert at that disease and that child or that woman or that man or whatever it is, if you're not an expert at that, it can fail because of you. Don't let it fail because of you. And you'll be very, very good at what you do. What an amazing thing to say, man. Super <laughs> impressive. I appreciate you. Like I said, I told you earlier, you're speaking to the soul and you're definitely speaking from the soul and it's really impressive. And you're doing a lot of good things. So thank you for the service that you're doing for, you know, our community and for other people's services. It's, it's making everybody better. Yeah, no. Oh, and I really appreciate that, but I do really appreciate you having me on. Um, I, uh, it's actually so nice to get back into this kind of stuff. It's been a, taking a little hiatus from this type of platform and, um, and I really appreciate uh, you having me on and I really appreciate what you're doing too. This, this is something we don't talk about very often, especially in EMS, because we're an eight-year young, can't handle the heat type type of uh, industry, and that's that's not a good way to go about it. And so you're doing a really good thing, and I appreciate you. Well, I appreciate it, man, and I I hope you continue doing what you're doing, and don't forget about the podcast. <laughs> I won't. We um, all like listening, so. <laughs> yeah, no, I appreciate that a bunch. Yeah, you have a, a wonderful rest of your day. Thanks, brother. You too. Be safe. Okay. Thanks. Bye. <laughs> Bye.
Thank you for listening. Before we wrap up, we have a few important announcements to share with you. Firstly, we're excited to announce the launch of our brand new 911 Nonsense Facebook group page. It's a community where everyone can go to connect, share ideas, discuss topics from the show, and get all of the most recent updates about the podcast. We'd love to have you join us and be part of the conversation. Next, we want to ask you to rate and review our podcast on your preferred platform. Your feedback means the world to us and helps us reach a wider audience. By rating and reviewing the show, you'll be supporting us in a big way and helping others discover 911 nonsense. If you enjoy what we do and would like to support the podcast even further, we have a few options available. You can visit samspursuit.com to find the links to our 911 nonsense merch page and our recently released noon gear page. Every contribution, no matter the size, goes a long way in helping us continue to better the podcast. We know that not everyone is comfortable being on the podcast, but we still want to hear your stories and experiences. If you have a compelling story and would like to share it to be read by me in a future episode, please reach out to us via email at 911nonsense at gmail.com or through our website's contact section. If you choose to be anonymous, we'll make sure to respect your privacy while sharing your story in a way that resonates with our audience. Thank you again for tuning in. We truly appreciate your support and look forward to bringing you more engaging content in the future. See you next week.